We're on to Philippians chapter 3. I'm going to start It says, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me, and it is safe for you. Now, if we probably don't go get past that first verse, it'll be enough. But what do you think he was saying when he says, it is safe for you? I was, I was walking through this, and I'm going, I don't think I've ever chewed on that one before. Rejoice in the Lord. Some of the translations will say, it's a safeguard for you. One says, it's for your own good. Temporary English version. Rejoice in the Lord. No problem to write these things. It's safe for you. What do you think of when you think of safety? It, it, protected, okay? So how are you protected when you rejoice? Well, what's the opposite of, of rejoicing? Spouting depression or sadness or anger? That's not safe for you? Could it be? I mean, how do you break this down? When I, when I start looking at that and I'm walking through it, I'm going, if I cultivate a habit of rejoicing, in some ways he's saying that's a good thing and a safety feature for my life. So if I say, Lord, thank you that I have breath, <laughs> air to breathe today, that you're giving me breath. Thank you, Lord, for this day. And I just start walking through very simple things. There's an attitude difference than if you carry the thing of, oh man, another day. I hate getting out of bed because I hate what's going to be ahead. There's a, there's a difference that can, we can take on in our lives that this rejoicing, he says, is a safeguard. Charlie had mentioned cynicism and sarcasm, but you know that people that walk in cynicism and sarcasm usually walk in depression as well, right? Nothing's going to work. It's all broken. It's all falling apart. And so there's this constant, things just won't work out. In Christ, Paul has this idea going, it, it has a good ending. It all will work out. And so through the day, there's this declaration of praise. Now, you might be looking and say, well, yeah, but you don't know my situation. You don't know my sorrows. It's true. Ask me if I care. I, I do, I do, I do, I do, I do. But 
Maybe you don't know his. I mean, he is writing this from jail, right? And he's writing to people that some of them are in jail. Now, it appears that he was in a Roman prison at this point. And prison is vastly different today than it was then. Do you know out of the Christian movement, even in this country, the term penitentiary came from the Christians? Make penitence out of people? You know, throw them in jail and they'll get their act together? Doesn't work, but it came out of reforms, you know, reform schools, all of that. Uh, you know, straighten them out. Uh, that said, not everybody's carried that idea with prison. Generally in that day, you were waiting there for your trial. And either then you'd be put to death or released, but there wasn't too much in between. But they didn't feel all that, it, you know, it was all that important to take care of you. As in, in a number of places of the world, you'd have to find someone to bring you food because they weren't all that concerned. Or let's go back and look at Paul's experience in Philippi, the place that he'd gone to when he's right, uh, later writing to these people. I remind you, he has this vision. It's called the Macedonian vision. And so he sees a man saying, come over here. And so he interprets that as being, God is calling me to Macedonia. So he picks a major city, Philippi, goes into it, and starts to say, and initially Lydia comes to the Lord, there's some people who respond, and then it all falls apart. There's a girl that's demon possessed who uh, divines things, and, and she follows him around, and eventually he casts out the devil, but her owners, or her, the people that made money off of her, are upset, and so they cause a big disturbance. And it says, the crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off of them. Okay, so they're stripped of their clothes. It's not like they had lots of extras. They, well, we'll just get another pair. Gave orders to beat them with rods, and they inflicted many blows upon them. So it's, it's not a case of, you know, let's... let's uh, you know, get their attention. There's more the approach of, well, we don't care if they live or die. So this beating is a, a true beating. Threw them in prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them in the inner prison, fastened their feet in stocks. So his experience in the prison of Philippi is after having been stripped and beaten, he's thrown into a prison in stocks, so he can't even move. Yet it says in that setting, he and Silas are praying and singing hymns to God. There's an attitude here that I can only hope to move toward. But I look at it and say, when he's writing rejoice, it's a safeguard for you. I can look back and say, in the prison setting, he figured it a safeguard even there to be given thanks unto the Lord. Not just moaning about the situation, 
but looking and saying, what I have in God is worth even this. You and I haven't had to experience those kind of things. But hopefully we can glean from the example. So what is it in life that we have to take on and say, I need to move this into the rejoicing sphere rather than the griping and complaining sphere. I need to move this from anger into rejoicing. I need to move this from worry into rejoicing. I need to take a different approach here. I was thinking, well, I had a number of conversations uh, in regard to marriage and family and this and that. And, you know, you can put a lot of eggs in the basket of once I get married, I'll be happy. And really put more energy into that temporal or hope into that temporal thing than what it'll actually give you. Now, marriage can be very happy, but it isn't the ultimate happiness found in God. And you can put a lot of eggs into the basket and say, well, kids, and it's true, the, the, the joy that they bring into households is amazing, but there are moments when you're going, I still have to choose and are rejoicing in the Lord. You may have to choose it on a daily basis, but it's still a choice. And there are things that you're going, well, if, if I can get a house or a home and feel secure in this, even though it's temporal, then happiness will be a part of my life. And I want to suggest to you that none of those things has the enduring capability of allowing you to continue in joy. But rather, in Christ, there's something that Paul had discovered so that whether he's without a wife, he's without kids, he's without a home, he's without health even in that moment, and yet he's given thanks. And if we can begin to embrace that and say, okay, I have a better situation than his, but I can still incorporate that attitude into my life, and thanksgiving can become a daily thing. And I'm being grateful for others around me. I can be grateful for the situation that I have, but I can also begin to declare thanks. Not a foolish, um, you know, I'm just going to ignore everything, but a focused thanks that says, God has redeemed my soul has promised me eternity in Him, is transforming my life even now, and I will be fully transformed when I'm in His presence, and that's enough. It's a powerful turning point, so to speak. What he does in the rest of this chapter is essentially declare the mindset that, that has brought him to this place. And so I'll walk through that quickly. But I, I still, I want to just say that you can step out of depression in the Lord. 
You can step out of that weariness that, that, that it, it says, I, it's just not working. And saying, in Christ, this is enough. It goes on, it says, and it'll take us a bit to get into it, but he says, look out for the dogs, evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Now, he's talking about the religious people, <laughs> which is kind of crazy. But uh, that's, that's his uh, take on it. And, uh, you know, we would say that isn't very polite to call them dogs. Uh, he did it. Deal with it. Uh, they, they had a different approach, didn't they? Um, he says, we're other circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. And there was a big battle going on in the church of those days. You know, are you going to be Jewish? Well, one of the signs of Jewish was circumcision. And so he's going, the true circumcision is what the Spirit of God does in our hearts in, in a sense, separating us from the world and cleansing us in a way that we didn't dream possible. And so what was this defining thing physically for the Old Testament folks, he says, has has transformed our hearts and our minds in Christ. The Spirit of God in our lives makes us different. And so he says, we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Says our confidence is in Christ who has given us his spirit. Says, I had reason for confidence in the flesh. And he goes on to list the things that he had done right religiously. And so he says, you know, I was brought up in this as a tribe of Benjamin. He says, I was a Pharisee, so I was in a very strict religious group. He says, I was zealous, I was legalistically righteous, but he says, it doesn't count for a thing. I actually had this sermon ready last Sunday, and then we canceled service. And uh, one of the things that, that I felt like was probing my heart in that time was, um, you know, and, we made the call at 7.30 in the morning. It looked ugly out. By 10, it was all sunshiny, and I'm going, wrong choice. But in that moment, one of the considerations that came to mind was that I knew a number of families that could just use a day off. And I'm going, is that religious or not? You don't build a church by not coming to church, right? But is it possible... There are days when it would be a very good thing not to be there. I don't want to go down that road too far. You know, and, and truthfully, you can't build a congregation on once a month and tenders. But there is a religiousness in us that at times puts more value even into the gathering than what we have in God. And it's, it's a subtle thing, but it's this knowledge that what we have is not just the group and it's not the joy of just seeing our friends, but it's this wonder of an encounter with God set apart by Him. There are days when you need a break. 
It's not our habit, but in some ways, it, you know, I was set up. I had the verses right there in front of me. Been studying them for a week. And then, then this question. Lord, help us not to be religious. That's, that's what Paul is declaring. He says, I was religious, but it wasn't getting me anywhere. I was zealous as you could be. Putting people to death over it. But it was not getting me where I needed to go. Whatever was gain, I counted loss for the sake of Christ. Count everything loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, he says, I not only count it loss, he says, I have suffered the loss of all things. Sitting in prison, he says, everything's been wiped out. But what I have is more valuable than anything I had before. Not having a righteousness of my own, it comes from the law, but what comes through faith in Christ. Righteousness from God that depends on faith. That's what I, I'm counting on. He's saying that's what I'm tied into. He had the powerful encounter of, of, of seeing Christ and, and you know, just a, a transforming life experience. But then if, if history, if I read it right, he's 14 years off in the wilderness, another three years off somewhere else, 17 years kind of just out of the picture, sorting things out, encountering the Lord, working it through, then back on, in a sense with this evangelism into the world. But, you know, all of that, he's just looking and saying, my life is so different. Everything was turned upside down. Everything that I had built is gone. But what I have in Christ, it's worth it. <coughs> that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection, may share in His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. He says... I'm committed even to the sufferings just like Christ went through that I may also participate in the resurrection. Very little of our thought is drawn toward the sufferings, right? I don't want to think about it. I assume you don't want to either. I don't like suffering. But he's saying there is a beauty in it. Sitting in jail... He has discovered some insights that are precious enough to him that he's saying, this is worth it. What I have in the Lord is valuable enough. Two weeks ago, we had looked at the second chapter, and we were looking at the person of Epaphroditus who had gone to serve with Paul. He'd gotten really sick. Paul sent him back. But he's saying, honor him. You know, and, and reading between the lines, you're going, it didn't work out the way that it was supposed to. But Paul's saying, even in that, there's a certain joy. And I started chewing on that further, and I started looking, you know, Job's first family, the, the kids were all wiped out. And, and there's no explanation given, except that you see that there's a dynamic in the heavenlies that goes beyond us, and I'm going... 
We don't understand every encounter of life. We don't understand every life. Sometimes lives are snapped up short and we're going, what happened? We just don't know. What about Naboth? You remember who Naboth is? You probably remember Jezebel because, you know, she was a bad lady. And, and so everybody remembers the Jezebel. Naboth is the one that she killed so her husband could have a vineyard. He was a righteous man. Had his life chopped off short by a wicked woman. And yet there's something in that that we're going, in eternity it makes sense, but in this lifetime, not really. What about Jonathan, the king's son? He spends his life encouraging the one who's going to be king next. You could have thought, well, he was a brave warrior. He was a noble guy. Why shouldn't he be the king? God chose not to. So you look at some of those life situations and you're going, in this lifetime, it doesn't all add up. But in Christ, with the hope of eternity settled in him, Paul's going, I want to participate in the sufferings so that I can also participate in the resurrection. And there, he has discovered a beauty of life even in suffering. Going back to that first verse, rejoice, it's a safeguard. If he's discovered that, why shouldn't we begin to embrace it? And begin to declare those things. When you look at someone and see their foibles, it doesn't mean that you have to start speaking of their weaknesses, but maybe you begin to speak life into them in terms of encouragement. That's a rejoicing over a life. It's not denying what's going on, but it's looking at what can be maybe what should be, and to begin declaring that. It may be that even in marriage there's this, you know, butting of heads and, and, and you're used to just duking it out. Why not begin to speak life and rejoice over that person? If he can do it in jail without a family, why can't we do it out of jail with a family? He goes on, and, and I, I love this next portion because I, I can read the first half and go, I'm not there yet. Working on it, but I'm not there yet. But he goes on to say, not that I've already obtained all this. I've already been made perfect. I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. In other words, I can't even make this all my own, but he says, Christ has already declared me his own. He, he's pulled me into this. Now I'm trying to live up to it. Christ has brought me in. Now I'm trying to live up to Christian. You know, I'm calling myself by his name, but now I'm, I'm trying to embrace all that that means. I don't consider that I've made it my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on to the goal, the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So he says, 
You know, the past, I'm just going to have to dump it. But I have my eyes fixed on something ahead. If you're all the time living in the past, you're living in regret and bitterness and, and anger, right? He's turned and he's looking ahead and he's saying it's a bright future. There's hope. So he says it's, it's bright. I can deal with today because I know what's coming ahead. I press on to the goal, the prize, the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Sixteen, only let us hold true to what we've attained. Imitating me, he says, keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I've already told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. So he's looking at the cross as being the focal point of the suffering, right? Through this chapter. That's what, it's, it's not the decoration. It's not the quaint idea. But he's looking at it as a, a brutal form of death. Some years ago, we were over in England and we toured a castle. And in one section of it, there were the implements of torture. And... Uh, there was a, there was a, a, yeah, I'm still dealing with it, so I might as well give it to you too. Get this picture. There's a metal cage just the size of a person that they would put people in and let them starve to death. They couldn't move. They were just, you know, claustrophobia. I'd be nuts in hours. I just know it. And, and I, I looked at that, how brutal. And there were other, other the, the mind is very creative and it can come up with amazing things of torture. But in looking at that and in looking you know, at, at the cross, it was an implement of, of torture. And yet he's saying, even in that suffering, my salvation was purchased. And in the cross, there was no victory because Christ came back from the dead. And so he's saying, in my sufferings with Christ, I have this hope of the resurrection as well. And so he's, he's looking at it and he says, some have become enemies of that suffering, of, that, of what Christ has done. Their end is destruction. Be very certain of that. Destruction is their end. But he says, their God is their belly, their glory is their shame, and their minds are set on earthly things. That describes our culture. <laughs> Risking the chance of getting in trouble. Cooking shows. How many? <laughs> They're awesome. <laughs> their God is their belly. Very close, right? Their glory is their shame. You know, we, we tend to exalt strangeness. Their minds are set on earthly things, and that's, that's the true difference. If this life is all that you have for, for gaining satisfaction and joy, then you've got to throw yourselves wholeheartedly into it. 
just like Charlie was mentioning earlier, you've got to try to experience everything you have you can before you die. But in Christ, there's a different path. And that's why innocence is honored, because you say what you have in the future far exceeds anything that you would experience in this day. Our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. I encourage you, don't ask for too much out of the temporal. Our culture has made sex a God. And you can have the assumption that Sex will take care of everything. And even in entering marriage, you can have this thing of, well, now it's free, it's, it's, you know, it's all good. There are limits to the joy simply because it is not the whole answer. It's a temporal joy. In Christ, there's more. And you will never satisfy yourself entirely with the temporal. And so you can chase it all you want. You can go down every road that you think you need to go down. You will not get there because the satisfaction ultimately is in Christ. That's something that has to be worked out in our day among Christians because we live in a society obsessed with it. And so most of us have come into marriage with with some twistedness that has to be corrected. But in Christ, it's possible. And in Christ, you can put it in the appropriate place and find the joy that He intended with it, but also find its place. doesn't rule all things, but is awesome in its setting. That's one aspect. And then you move on to the other things. It's just like, you know, um, you can assume that because you, you enter marriage that, that uh, you now have this closest friendship of life and intimacy in a way that will be with no other, that you can share the deepest feelings of life, and yet even that won't give you entire satisfaction simply because it's a temporal relationship. The eternal will never be replaced by the temporal. And so in its appropriate setting, it's awesome. It's awesome. In its place. Now the challenge becomes... If I don't step into this foolishness, it's almost as if I have to take on a measure of boredom in life. I think that's the right word. And yet, (laughs) how do you say, in that boredom, (laughs) there's a fullness of life that God will establish for you. Because you're taking the right path. Finding the appropriate place and emphasis on things 
is part of the challenge of pressing on. And to acknowledge that God has designed us to live in the temporal, but with our eyes on the eternal. And to let that drive our attention for the day. We have great hope in Him. Praise to the Lord. I thank you for this passage that challenges us to rejoice. I thank you that our lives are being transformed by you. I thank you that you bring healing to the fractures that we have brought on by our foolishness. I thank you that we have hope of total transformation in eternity. For each one here, I pray that your blessing would rest on them in the sense, Lord, that you would move them out of depression and worry and anxiety and anger and bitterness into the wholesomeness that truly rejoices in life, even in messed up situations. Thank you for this example through Paul. Amen. want to offer opportunity for prayer, particularly for those that have been wrestling with depression. As a young man, um, I definitely had seasons of that and battled it. I, I, but I, God did bring a transformation into my heart, and a lot of that was done through beginning to speak life-giving things and to rejoice and to give thanks to him whenever I saw something that was struck me as I should be thankful for this. And uh, I start my days with thanks to the Lord. When I pray over my meals in the morning, I give thanks. And it's not just for the food, but, you know, it's just this cultivating a thankfulness. And one day you begin to say, I'm different. I don't remember the change. I just know that I'm different. And I'd encourage you that that's available in the Lord. I'm going to pray for God's blessing on you. There is a meal downstairs. Again, I remind you, Wednesday, let's have a great time together. Uh, yeah, open-ended worship beyond this. May your blessing rest on these, your people. May they know the fullness of favor that you intend for their lives. May they discover with joy what a privilege it is to rejoice in you. I ask as they go into the community that you'll give them words of life to speak over others. I ask that they would be encouragers. I pray, Lord, that you will enable them to carry out the workings of your kingdom. They will be loving toward all. I pray that you will enable them with the supernatural. Be exalted, we pray. We love you this day. God bless you.